Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your host, Al Levy. All right, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy. With me is someone that I've known for a long time, uh, one of my favorite people in this weird-ass industry, Mr. Juan Punchy Gonzalez, who is kind of like a renaissance man. I'd say that that's a accurate assessment. Um, I knew him as a front-of-house engineer at first, a really, really good one who knew how to make the most chaotic-sounding extreme metal sound like music in situations where it shouldn't sound like music, like large outdoor venues. Um, then that turned into me knowing him as a tour manager. He tour managed me on some overseas stuff uh, and basically saved my ass. Then I realized that he also had a studio and made videos and now I think does live sound for a theater. Like he, he's done all kinds of different things and he's got an excellent excellent singing voice so uh punchy <laughs> hi <laughs> hi y'all how are you bud <laughs> i'm all right it, my life's a lot different than last time we hung out um have this whole uh unstoppable recording machine business going and i don't record anymore uh more focused on showing people how to how to live their lives in audio <laughs> rather than making audio but uh I'm I'm loving it. So you're out of the game completely. I mean, I know you're doing this, but you're out of the game completely. You're not playing, re- making records. You're not doing none of no, that. Zero. Wow. Um, I I stopped at the end of 2014 so that I could build this. Um, I just kind of figured that I'd take a year to build it and then jump back in or whatever. But it quickly became clear that you can't build something like this and also record at the same time um it's too taxing um the recording is too taxing or this is too taxing like you both of those require you to be a hundred percent in my opinion to do a good job you have to kind of you kind of have to commit yourself fully at least i do um and with this we have some seriously lofty goals of uh trying to get to, like, you know, number one in online audio education in the next five years. And I, I can't really be doing something else that requires me to, you know, no, no, really of course not, man. myself. When you're, yeah. when you're, like, mixing and shit, you're, you're basically sitting at a computer for 10 to 12 hours at a shot and, and, yep. and, you know, fixing audio and realigning drums and doing all kinds of nonsense. So it, uh, it definitely uh, is taxing. Yeah, and when you're done, uh, at least when I was m- doing that full time, when I was done, I didn't have anything left to give. Oh yeah, uh, for anything else. So yeah, it'll beat you up. It, it'll definitely beat you up. But I think that the the thing is, I've always, I'm not really into like dumb quotes or even smart quotes. To I don't really think that you can, uh, I guess. Uh, simplify life down to quotes, but here's one that really worked for me, which is that you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything. Um, 
And that when I heard that, that kind of like hit home because it's like, yeah, there's so many different things I have the ability or the talent or the brain power to be able to do. I'm kind of lucky that way. But I still have to deal with this thing called time that we all have to deal with and have to make choices as to what's important and uh, what has to go by the wayside if I want to be able to see something, you know, come into reality. So sure, here we are. Now, what about you? I've been ranting about myself. Okay. Well, um, I uh, in uh, 2015, uh, I I got married uh, again. Congratulations! Uh, thank you. And uh, uh, she's a wonderful Italian woman, and uh, she moved from Italy uh, to the United States to be with me, and. Um, then uh, yeah, I, I continued to be a touring guy. I mean, I would do, I would still do mixes and mastering and stuff like that in the studio in between tours through all all that time. But um, I was still a touring guy at the time, and and uh, so uh, uh, in September of 2015, while I was out with Symphony X, uh, I got a phone call from my wife, and she says, uh, "I'm I'm I'm very pregnant. It's a boy, and I'm due in April." And uh, about a week and a half later, I get a phone call from a company called Ruth Eckert Hall, Inc., which is uh, like a performing arts center down here in uh, Tampa, Tampa St. Pete, Clearwater area, uh, saying, hey, the, uh, the house position at the Capitol Theater is open, and would you be interested in applying? Um, and, uh, of course, I mean, I had to take that opportunity because uh, being able to be home and, and raise my son this is my first child, so you know, at, at, at age forty-five, I'm, I'm I'm becoming a dad for the first time. I was forty-four at the time, but uh, I'm becoming a dad at the time, and 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 saying to myself, my God, I I, I don't want to see my kid grow up on Skype. I know so many dads and moms too in the touring world that uh, they can't spend any time with their children, and other people are raising their children while they're out there earning a living. So I count myself to be very uh, one of the blessed ones to be able to. Uh, be able to be home and still do what I do, and 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 as the head technician uh, at the Capitol Theater, I'll I wind up mixing about thirty percent of what comes through there. Uh, the rest of the time, it'll be visiting engineers, uh, guys that basically what I used to do. Um, so I'm 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 been doing that pretty much for the last two years, and it looks like that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing uh, for my main source of employment. Uh, for the coming future. So uh, it's a little different from touring, except for the fact that now I get to play the role of the house guy dealing with my former counterpart, if you will. And how interesting is that? (laughs) Because at least, I mean, it's got to be different, though, than when dealing with some house guys on the metal tours. Oh, yeah. I mean, number one, this particular theater just recently went through, well, a couple of years back, went through a $10 million renovation. So everything in there, even though the theater was originally built in 1921, everything in there is brand new. So so it's like, I, and there's no, it's not dirty at all. It's it's not like a dirty club with penises drawn on the walls and all that stuff like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's, it's a real venue. It, it, it's, it's super nice in there. And, uh, you know, most of the acts that we, I mean, to give you an example of some of the acts that come through there, we had Olivia Newton-John last month. And we had, like, uh, last year, like, Tony Orlando. And then, but coming up real soon, we have Ann Wilson of Heart and Ingve Malmsteen. <laughs> 
Ingve. Ingve. You know Amazing. <laughs> and Ace Fraley, you know, and and you know, a lot a lot of what comes through are guys that like won Grammys like 30 years ago, and and they're touring on their one hit that got them their Grammy, that kind of thing. That's a lot of that is uh, uh, what our 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 artist base is for the venue, but. Um, we are a, a, an actually union affiliated room, so I'm a member of a, of the Stagehands Union, and uh, all of the labor that's there is unionized. So uh, it's it's one of the more it's there aren't that many club size venues. Our capacity is 725. There aren't that many club size venues in the United States that are unionized, and we are. So that's like something I'm actually really rather proud of. Can you talk about that a, a little because? Um I know a lot of bands hate playing union venues. Well, they hate playing. But, but union. That's all. That's all I know. But that's all I know. I have nothing else to say about it. No, so fair I enough. Hear fair your enough. Thoughts. Um, look, here's the deal about working in a union room. There's a schedule. Okay, if you cannot be within the schedule, then number one, you suck, and then number two, that's your problem, okay? But all the same people that probably complain about working in union rooms are also the same people that put up memes about living wages and and keeping work hours (laughs) to like 20 hours a week, you know what I mean? These are all the same people that complain about that. But the reality is, is that when you go into a union room, you are well aware of your load-in time, you are well aware of the fact that these people meaning the crew, will go on break at a certain time. If you don't have your act together to be able to work within those constraints, okay, well, then you suck, period. End of story. That's the reality, okay? If you're on a movie set, you're on a union movie set, honey. If you work at any venue that's that's usually over 1,000 capacity or even 2,000 capacity, you're working in a union room. And it's not that big of a deal. Just get your act together and do your job. And every- See, this is, this is why I love you. Because um, my first experience with you was I, I almost felt like uh, I came of age because before... Punchy was in my life um, on that Ozfest tour. I fucking I couldn't handle these types of things, like the pressure of working in a union room uh, with my band or dealing with that kind of thing. And through uh, doing all those off dates with you, when Nile, right. and uh, being you know having you crack down on us in the friendliest way possible, um, it really after that. Like, we could handle all of it with ease. Um, And I actually started to prefer that environment because you knew everything was going to be taken care of. Right. The idea is about, it's about predictability. You know, one of the things that I used to do when I toured as a front of house engineer is I brought, I had this little, I still have it actually. I have this netbook that I purchased in 2009. It's this little tiny Windows 7 based PC, right? And and the reason why I bought it is because uh, number one, nobody would want to steal it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I could leave it at front of house and, and, you know, run Windows Media Player and nobody would like, you know, like an iPod would just quickly run with it and stick it in their pocket. Um, uh, so <laughs> yeah, you'll have to pay someone to steal a netbook. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, you know, even though a netbook does like ten thousand things more than an iPod could ever imagine doing. But anyway, uh, um, uh, I would use the exact same playlist every day. 
Like, these are the songs that are played, and that's how it is. And one of the things that a lot of people would always say to me is like, I can almost time my day from doors to the time that I have to be on stage just based on the song that's playing on the PA. And it might seem redundant to the people that are actually on the tour, but keep in mind that that's the first day your show's been in that room. So to them, it, it's new. It doesn't matter. And, and, there's, and, and I also was a very, very clear and very, uh, it was very, very important to me to make sure that the pre-show music that played before the band was always 10 or 15 dB below what the band's sound pressure level was going to be. Because then you would have excitement. You would have this, like, suddenly the band is loud and, oh, here we go. You know what I mean? And it, it makes, no matter, no matter what goes on after that music, it's the heaviest thing they've heard in 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever it is. And, and nothing is more annoying than what they call the metal DJ, right? It's some guy that's playing some <laughs> god awful ancient like uh, uh, Dimmu Borgir song, and it's just super loud, and all this 4K is just screaming through the room. And and by the time the band goes on, it sounds like easy listening, you know? Like like that that is the worst thing ever. And and you know, Lord love all the people that pretend to be metal DJs or whatever, whatever it is that makes you happy. Um, but it just never worked on my tour. And when I advanced shows, I made sure that the venues knew there's not going to be any kind of metal DJ. I have the music from doors to close, and that's it. I remember that, too. Um, I actually do remember that. Um, and I, you never explained to me why you did that. That's really, really smart. Well, it's like, it's like look, when, when you look at, like, 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 like a movie, for instance, when a movie gets distributed, okay, all the previews and everything that you see prior to the movie are planned, okay? So it's an experience that the, the audience has from the second they walk into the theater to the second that they leave. So it should be the same experience from city to city. There's no reason why it needs to change. Nobody needs chaos in their lives, especially people that travel in vans or buses and live in a coffin for a living. You know, they need a sense of normalcy because there's already too much chaos around them. Yeah, and what's the one thing that can uh, really help someone feel normalcy? It would be music. You, the way that you associate music with, if say the music, the same song is always playing at catering time. Yeah, exactly. And same song is playing right before you sound check and all that. That's that's a really, really, I guess, effective way to get people who don't pay attention to anything or read anything to, uh, I guess, subconsciously know what's going on. Yeah, they get an idea like, oh my God, uh, Slayer Season of the Abyss is playing. I, I, I got 15 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, oh my God, you know, Overkill's playing. We're on next, you know, that kind of thing. So, so uh, th that's super important. You know, that's super important to create a, that sense of, 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 of normalcy throughout the day so that, you know, whatever chaotic thing comes at the bands or the crew that day, uh, at least they don't need to worry about what's going on uh, on the PA system. They got it. They've got it. You know, that kind of thing. So the metal DJ is one of the most annoying things ever. Want to know something else that annoyed the piss out of me? Sure. When... Not just when the house music is louder than the band 
But what about when the band's intro oh. <laughs> sounds better than the band oh, itself? Yeah. You have this, <laughs> right, exactly. Like the band's intro is like some sort of like symphonic piece with all these subs and all this wonderful frequency spectrum and it's so beautiful and everything. And then the band kicks in and like the guitar tone is like like 4K and up <laughs> and it's all clicky kick drum and it's all, you know, and, and the guy's like, Wee! You know, I, 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 <laughs> it's amazing. What, what, I mean, one of the funny things that I always like to say about like death metal or extreme music or whatever, okay, is is that it's the only genre of music where a singer can go like during soundcheck and then turn to the monitor guy and say, "Yeah, that sounds great." <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> did, did you always find it funny? Because um, I always have. Yeah, I mean, look, I understand that the you know they've got to hear something, they got to hear whatever they got to hear, you know, uh, to make them feel uh, uh, at ease with their sound or at ease on stage. I get it, you know. Trust me. I mean, I I, I can appreciate the comfort zone concept, but but uh, yeah, it's still really funny. <laughs> it is funny, dude. I mean, it is funny, you know. These are are, are guitar players that feel the need to fill the entire room up with their guitar amp, man, because that's my tone. It's like, dude, your tone sucks, okay? You, you're like, your tone sucks, and the way your guitar sounds to you with your ass facing the speakers is completely different than the way your guitar tone sounds to an SM57 half an inch away from this cone. So right. get over yourself. <laughs> Speaking of bad tone... Metal, especially extreme metal, isn't a style of music that sounds very good from the get-go. Like, everything about it well, it's, is just... it's definitely an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste, but what I mean is just it's arranged in a way that can easily take the sound off a cliff. Like, it's just not... It's just not like... It's not like a style of music where, you know, the bass sits in the bass and... There's like a keyboard here and maybe an acoustic guitar and a voice, you know, where it all just kind of takes its own space. Everything is competing with everything else. That's true. And it's chaotic and and it's a tough it's a tough type of music to make sound good. But you've done a great job um, of making some bands that I've heard with other sound guys sound terrible you've managed to make them sound big and rich and musical like you definitely know how to make a very tough style of music sound great in the toughest of conditions so let's talk about that but some first off, I, first off i would like to thank you for the compliment and your check is in the mail thank you thanks um <laughs> you, you got my new address right Ah, uh, yes thank you okay cool just making sure um so well, I mean, I know that your comment right now about guitar players with terrible tone that want to fill up the room, you've had to deal with some of those guys. Sure. But then you turn around and somehow make them sound good in context of their whole band. Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with gauging the size of the room. It's actually, believe it or not, easier to mix in, like, say, an open air uh, where you're like a uh, hundred yards away from the stage than it is to mix in a really really small club where you're in line of sight of the four twelves or you're in or or symbols are really ringing in a room or something like that. It's much easier. You get you can actually put like things like overheads in the mix and stuff like that, um, uh, and actually get 
something out of it. So like I always found other than the pressure of having to quickly dial in a mix, like for instance, like at, a, at an open air festival like Vakken or, or Brutal Assault or something like that, uh, where you have a 30 minute window to uh, get your band on stage, mic'd up and line checked because you're on next, that kind of thing. There's that pressure, but I found that um, mixing, you actually have more headroom and more, you can actually get more of an album quality thing because you're not in the direct sound path of any of the instruments individually. You're actually listening to the PA system. And it's kind of like mixing uh, 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 in a giant control room with really big fucking NS10s. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you know, because if you're looking at it like in field of view, they're about the size of what an NS10 would look like you know, to you if yeah. you're sitting in a convention, you know, so, so they're really big speakers, you know, and, and so I found that mixing in an open air and also in an open air, you have no, um, natural acoustics to compete with whatever tone is happening. So any reverb or delay or any kind of effect that you put on, uh, in any instrument is actually you doing it and not the room, you know? So, so, uh, uh, in that respect, it's easier. But uh, when you're in a small club and like, let's say for the sake of argument, your, your mixed position just happens to be in front of like one of the guitar players. Like one of the things that I would have like uh, the Nile guys do, and they were really, really good about this. Um, if their cabinet was aimed straight at me, I would always tell like either Carl or Dallas, like, hey, man, is there any way I can get you to just to pivot that thing a little bit more to the right or a little bit more to the left because if not that's all I'm going to hear all night and I'm not going to put you in the mix appropriately and and they understood that concept and and always complied. They were really, really good about that because they knew that I was always trying to make the experience for the crowd a, a much better experience than than you know just mixing for myself you know I wanted the crowd to get as much PA and as much of the sound system that much of the, that the sound system had to offer than than you know just just than suffering and hearing nothing but like one tone all night you know that kind of thing and Nile uh, I got to say Nile is one of those bands that I heard sound great under you and. They are one chaotic band. Oh, sure. I mean, it's definitely everything louder than everything else, everything faster than everything else. But if one of the things that I always like to do, and this is, this is something that I always like to tell all sound guys, okay, is that your, your console is a musical instrument. Okay, it really is. It's not a set it and forget it concept. It's not just, oh, I dial in the tones, I make it this loud, and I can kind of sit back and watch. That's not the case because slower guitar leads uh, uh, tend to, to pierce through very chaotic moments, whereas very fast guitar leads tend to get jumbled up. So if you're not on top of that slider during the guitar lead and you don't know what's going on, then you're actually missing a good amount of of what music is being portrayed there um you know so so it's really important to be constantly making adjustments to to fit the arrangements of the songs so that uh, uh people hear exactly what they need to hear at the right moment in time so uh that set it and forget it uh audio engineer concept to me is 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 incorrect in, in its approach and and generally speaking I found that guys that do that 
aren't really musicians. They're not people that actually play musical instruments. They just happen to do sound. And yeah. and 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 the problem is is that an audio engineer is the culmination of all the sounds that are happening on stage. And if you don't understand how an instrument is supposed to sound and where it's supposed to make noise at the right time, then you're actually missing the big picture. And you're missing everything. And so is the crowd, unfortunately, due to your <laughs> negligence. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was a nice uh, by byproduct yeah. of you not knowing what the hell's going on. Right. And 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 you know, what are the, and this is a, a a big drag about um certain consoles that will go nameless, okay? Is that they are non-musical in their approach. Okay? They're designed to be toured with and so it becomes a particular engineer's console that he can go ahead and program fader moves in and all that and basically hit go as a series of cues. But when they show up at a festival, okay, and you spend most of your time staring at the console to make sure that you're doing something right because the feel isn't the feel of an actual like mixing console. It doesn't feel musical. Right, mm -hmm. uh, you spend less time looking at the band, and you don't know. And if you don't musically know what's happening, like if you haven't already memorized the band's arrangements, then you're gonna miss cues. You're gonna miss cues because you can't stare at the band while you're doing your job. You become more of a visual audio engineer than an audio engineer that gets to look at the band, if you will. You know. So I'm I'm not gonna name those particular consoles just in case they uh, they sponsor you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I guess um, speaking of knowing the music, is that something that you would learn on tour, or would you learn it before a tour? Well, I if I ever worked with a band that I never that I never had an opportunity to mix, right? I at least want to get their set list and, if anything, learn the songs that they plan on doing so that I can be as familiar as I can before I get into show one. Usually by show five, I've got it memorized. I have a pretty decent memory when it comes to music. So by the fifth show of a tour, I pretty much have like a, a good set routine as to what's going to happen where and, and, and why. Um, but if it's something like a sight unseen kind of thing, then I'm like, oh boy, who's going to do what? Oh my God, who's doing? Who's taking this solo? And oh, uh, you know that kind of thing. Uh, that that can get a little harrowing. But uh, yeah, you tr always try to do your research. Try to do your research as much as you possibly can before you get there. It's like anything else, you know. If if you were in college or high school or whatever, and and you're suddenly going to take this test without ever reading the book, you're probably going to fail the first time you do it. You know, <laughs> unless you luck out, unless you happen to luck out and be a natural at something. And then, and, and, you know, there are there are some really kind of interesting moments like one of them. I got a phone call. I guess it was I'm going to say 2013 or something like that. I get a phone call from uh, 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 Overkill. Right. Didi. He says, mm -hmm. yeah, hey, uh, we're going down to South America uh, to play this show in Colombia, which is called Rock Out Park. Now, Rock Out Rock Al Parque, right? Rock Out Park is this festival that's like three days long, all right? And each day, there's like a quarter of a million people there, okay? God. And on top of that, it gets broadcast live, simulcast on the national television station, all right? And... Oh, 
it, real quick, isn't it funny how people in the U.S. here uh, couldn't even fathom what 250,000 people at a show is, and yet bands like Overkill, who pull one to two to 300 people here, will do that. That's South right. America. That, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. It's insane. Exactly. So, so, um, and they're headlining this particular show. Okay, they're the headliners for the metal night. The, this particular festival is split up into different nights. There's like a, a a rock night, like where like your typical like Everclears and that kind of thing would play, and then there's like a metal night where you have this mixture of metal bands from Latin America, Europe, and North America. Right. And then you have this like kind of folksy kind of thing that happens on night three. Uh, like Latin music and folky music, that kind of thing that happens on night three. So uh, in the metal night, you know, and, and not only that, but, you know, you don't fly down there with any backline or anything that you're using all local backline. You might be lucky enough to get your own drum set, but you're going to get that drum set maybe two or three bands before you play to get it set up in time and all that. You'll get your own riser, they'll roll it into position, and then whatever amps are on stage, you may get your choice of head or whatever, but you better have somebody with you that knows what the heck they're doing or you're probably going to fail. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 happen to be, I happen to have been a, a, an Overkill fan. Okay, I listened to Overkill when I was in high school and, you know, songs like Elimination and Skull Crusher and stuff like that. I, I just love those songs. So I get this phone call and they said, OK, yeah, we're, we're, we're playing down there and our normal engineer uh, can't make it. Uh, can you do it? Uh, we know you did the festival last year with Morbid Angel and, and we know that you know the, the situation. So, you know, can you do it? And I'm like, you know, absolutely sure. I, I, yeah, you, are you kidding? I'd love to. So, you know, keep in mind, you know, I'd never mixed this band before in my life. And not only have I, you know, I've not only have I not mixed this band, but the mix position for this particular festival is not center. It's it's to the right, it's or or the stage left side of the PA system. So you're not even in line of sight of the PA. You you're mixing the band on near field monitors outside on a platform like 30 feet up, 40 feet up. And, and that's weird. It's the weirdest thing. You're not actually in line of sight of the PA system. So in order to get an idea of what the PA is going to sound like, you kind of have to like walk the walk the festival listen to what the band sounds like, kind of get a mental picture of it, and then go climb this tower and go take a listen to what that engineer is hearing. And, <laughs> and, then, and then when it comes time to do your show, right, then you got to kind of remember that, that difference and try to match it as good as possible. Now, luckily, this particular systems engineer that that built that particular that 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 PA system had it pretty much on the on the ball it was pretty close it actually sounded like a very small version of the PA that's blasting to my left okay um so if you can make it sound good in the near fields, then the the PA sounds good. And so far, all the bootleg recordings that I've seen of people in the audience, you know, a couple football fields back, it sounds okay. It sounds great, you know, on a, you know, on a phone, <laughs> on a phone, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So uh, I guess I did. As long my, as it sounds great on a phone, as long as it right. sounds good on the phone. Um, <laughs> but you know, no pressure. You know, you've never mixed the band before. It's only in front of a quarter million people and a live broadcast 
broadcast on television. Okay, dude, no sound check, no pressure, go. And you had to do it in a sniper tower. And I have to do it in a sniper tower, you know. <laughs> and keeping in mind, this particular festival is put on by the government of Colombia. So it is it's a response to the old Pablo Escobar thing. Um, at least this is what I was told. Maybe I'm wrong. But I was told that basically during the era of Pablo Escobar, he had such a very large... Um, uh, uh, employer employment base, if you will, em- employee base, and he would put on these concerts, like like open air festivals and stuff like that. So when they eliminated him from the equation, there was this kind of like emptiness void that needed to be filled so the government put on this festival this three-day-long festival to kind of fill that void and um, it's a dry festival so there's no alcohol anywhere on the grounds you can't even bring alcohol into the backstage they frisk you and they search the bus that seems like a uh, that that seems interesting I that seems like uh, that festival might have to be an acquired taste for some people no, there's a quarter of a million people that that show up and and they have a great time and have an awesome time. I mean, they love it. They, they, I mean, how often do they get a chance to to True. to see this kind of thing and be part of this type? This I size just can't event. imagine a festival that size with no alcohol. That's incredible. No alcohol and and giant tanks and military vehicles at the front gates. So, you know, ain't no terrorists either. You know, so... (laughs) (laughs) So, all in all, it seems like a pretty good time if you can get the sound right. Yeah, of course. I mean, again, there's a lot of pressure because also your board mix is the is the mix that's going out over the tele on the television station. So, so yeah, not only does it need to sound good outside, but it needs to sound good in headphones too, because that board mix is what the rest of the country is seeing. So, do you like that kind of pressure? Why not? It, I it, well, why not? Some people buckle under it. I think is, they're in the wrong. Bu- why not? They're in the wrong business. Fair, fair enough. But have you always been uh, okay with it? Is this something you had to, I guess, learn how to deal with? Does it just come naturally to you? Well, you know, nothing comes naturally. I mean, I had my puckering moments. Don't get me wrong. There were moments where, you know, uh, when it's the first time you're mixing a giant festival, and and you better hope that you know what you're doing. And at that point, you just kind of close your eyes and and um, and and just kind of do what you do, do what you do, and and hope your skill works in your favor. Trust me, there's an old adage, you know, everybody knows two things in their life, what their asshole supposedly smells like and sound. So if there's a problem, (laughs) someone in Germany will let you know that you're doing it wrong. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) That is absolutely true. They will let you know. Oh, yeah. And it's the funniest thing because... You know, they'll give you like these strange criticisms like, hey, the hi-hat's too quiet. And you're like, dude, shut up. You know what I mean? Like, get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? Like, like and they'll do it like in the middle of the song, like while you're doing your job. Like, hey, turn up the hi-hat. And you're like, dude, shut up, man. Get out of here. Go get drunk or something. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, like, shut up. If that's what you're worried about, then I guess I'm doing all right. You know? 
So, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty amusing the way the the way fans and then you know then you also have those very gracious fans uh, that come up to you at the end of the show and, and thank you for for you know doing a good job and and uh, I always like to say that the uh, the sound guy is the last guy to know that he's deaf. I, uh, one of my funniest moments was uh, sound checking in Poland once and. On this particular show, we had to work with the house guy. I think the guy that we had on tour uh, was sick or something. So we're working with the house guy. He's sound checking us. Um, he's being real, like, real cold and, like, one-word answers. And he spoke good English. It wasn't a language barrier thing. And so we go through the sound check very, very mechanically. We get to the end. And uh, he has barely said anything to us. They're like, what do you think? How's it sound out there? And the response was, for me, this is shit. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, dude. For, for me, this is shit. So thanks. There was this guy. I, I, I think his name was Christoph, right? He, he was a, a merchandiser in, in, in Europe. And like my early years of touring, like with Morbid back in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, this guy just always seemed to be there, right? And he was a smart dude. He spoke like nine languages or 10 languages and, and probably should have been working like at the UN or something like that. Something, something a little bit more meaningful than like selling like t shirts at a heavy metal show in front of four people not that there's okay let me stop myself <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with selling merchandise no offense, i'm not offending people. anybody here okay but when you speak 10 languages dude and and that's the best you got going on then you know maybe there's something else wrong with his personality well anyway one of the things that he would do is is he would go up to you whoever you are you were as an artist right not to me as a sound but to the artists and tell them straight up like Yes, I loved the first song from your demo, but the rest is shit. (laughs) I love that. The guy was the best, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, the rest is shit. (laughs) I don't know why, like, when you're over there, those people coming up to you and telling you that is just the funniest thing ever. Whereas sometimes over here... People coming up like that, they're so unwelcome. It's like, just get the fuck out of this backstage. Who asked you your opinion? Yeah, nobody cares. Well, <laughs> yeah, over there, you could have some guy spitting in your face drunk all over you, hugging you, uh, totally violating your personal space, telling yeah. you how bad everything you did is. <laughs> And it's okay. It's funny. It's okay because you're actually over there, and it's 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 a different animal when you're like over there, you know, than when you're because you 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 can't be ashamed of of foreign foreigners, but you can be ashamed of your own people. So it's easy to be ashamed of 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 an American telling you you suck, like dude, you suck, you know, than like some guy from like Latvia going, yes, uh, I think you suck. You suck, you know. <laughs> I loved it. So, all right. So, speaking, let's. This is a good time to pivot. Let's right. talk about tour managing because right. um, you taught me a whole hell of a lot about surviving on the road. Um, and I'd say that you're about as serious of a tour manager as you are as a sound guy. Um, you basically helped my band that literally didn't know what the fuck we were doing get our shit together 
And you were nice about it, too. But uh, I'm sure that people listening to this can guess that you you run a pretty tight ship. Sure. Um, and that really, really helped. How did you get into tour managing? Do you enjoy it? Do you ever see that happening again? And uh, let's let's just talk a little bit about it. Well, I want to get into Sure. It. The long and the short of how I got into tour managing was I was on several tours with both good and bad tour managers, effectual and ineffectual tour managers, sober and drunk and or high tour managers, okay? Um, And this one particular time, I was out with this goth band called Christian Death, right? I remember them. Okay, we were in Europe, and we had this tour manager who was a nice guy, but... Uh, just he was just kind of ineffectual. Like he wasn't. And you were doing you were doing sound. I was actually <laughs> my job description was guitar tech slash keyboard player in the band. Okay. Okay. Because they had about four or five songs that had. This is the days before like playing to a track. You know what I mean? Like this is this this predates like a real computer or anything. This is like 1994. Okay. So this predates like like. The computer that it would have taken to do tracks would have been like a giant tower of some kind, and 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 you know there wasn't really the Pro Tools didn't even exist. It was sound tools and that kind of thing. This predates ADATs even to give you an idea. So um, they had a few songs that had keyboard parts, and I could play keyboards good enough to edit. So so uh, you like that good enough to edit? Uh, um, <laughs> so so I would tune guitars. And and in between guitar changes, I had had a few songs where I had to play keyboards. And um, we had this tour manager guy. He was a nice guy, whatever. But he just really, he never dotted I's and crossed T's. He was always that kind of, he left things out, you know, undone. And then I just wound up picking up a lot of slack. And then finally, the 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 next tour, uh, Valor, who's like he's kind of like the the Eddie Van Halen of 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 uh, of Christian Death. He's like the 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 leader of the band. Um, he just said, "Hey, man, you know, could you tour manage?" You know, and and actually earlier in that tour, they we had a, an engineer that was going to show up on the tour about four or five days into the tour because it was crossing over another tour that he was doing, and uh, so I went out front of house and got basic tones for the house sound guy to just kind of push faders on, and Valor thought that I did a good job doing that. So actually, Valor from Christian Death gave me my first shot at sound engineer and tour manager and the the tour that followed that tour where i was guitar teching and playing keyboards uh he had actually bought an adat a black-faced adat and started playing the tracks on the following tour so they didn't need a keyboard player anymore um and so so they just had a guitar tech at that point on the lo, tour. Lo and behold, the monster was born. The monster was born. So he actually gave me my first shot. And then um, uh, when Formula's Fatal to the Flesh first toured uh, uh, in 98, uh, I was given the job of lighting guy and 
tour manager because they had, uh, as a front of house engineer, uh, a guy named George Geranius, who was the sound engineer for acts like Blue Oyster Cult and Dokken and, and stuff like that. He had done that in the 80s. And so he was... You know, he was doing like, oh, and he also did Anthrax. That was another one of his big bands that he did uh, in the 80s and early 90s. So Morbid Angel hired him to be the, the sound engineer. And um, then he did the American tour, but then he, he had a bout with like, he had a, a, a like a tumor in his stomach that he was able to have removed, but he couldn't do the... Uh, the, the American tour. He did the European tour, but he couldn't do the American tour. So then uh, Gunter, the band's manager, said, okay, well, dude, do you want to mix Morbid? You're the only person I know of that's actually been with the band for several years, knows the music. You know, do you want to do it? And I said, yes, I do. And uh, so I wound up mixing Morbid at that point, and I pretty much was their audio engineer from 1998 up until 2014. Goddamn. So... Did you tour manage them as well? Yes, I did both jobs. It was uh, it, it 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 was harrowing to say the least, but only only because they you know they they have very very hectic tour schedules and they'll do back to back like they'll go to Europe and then they'll fly home for three days and then we go to Japan and Australia and and that kind of thing and it was just a lot of a lot of stuff to go on and I just I basically played the role of fifth Beatle for you know over 20 years of the band and um i did everything i could i worked on two of their records i even uh did a documentary for the band uh the tales of the sick one that 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 uh was a companion to blessed of the sick uh when they did the 20th anniversary of that i believe it was 20th anniversary or something like that 10th anniversary um I watched that like six months ago. Oh, you did? Yeah, for some reason. I don't know. I got, I just got curious about the old school death metal production. Right. And, and how, and I just wanted, I just got, because I remember at the time people, you know, now things have changed, but like at the time people were like, it's so slick. How do they do it? It's so like processed and all this stuff. I wanted to just, I don't know. I just want to get like a look into that world. Well, you know, and what, that was one of, the things, one of the only looks you could find. Yeah, one of the things that I made it a, a point was I went a little nerdy when I was interviewing Tom Morris, and I started asking him questions that your typical like metal interviewer guy wouldn't ask. You know, like, oh, dude, you know, did they wear leather? Yeah, none of that <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? I asked him, like, dude, how did <laughs> Do you? Do they wear leather? <laughs> <laughs> like did, you know, like like how with tape machines back in the day because there uh, uh, there was no sound tools there was none of that stuff how with tape machines did you do sound replacements how did that po how was that possible and you know he explained the whole technique to me that it was it was kind of voodoo and how they used to do it back then but you know also album budgets were ninety hundred thousand dollars it was it was not unusual um, you know to have these big album budgets because at the same time record labels were actually selling records and 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 nowadays that's just it's 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 nearly impossible to get people to buy pieces of plastic let alone buy bits you know so uh it's difficult for for record labels and artists alike to make money as recording artists yeah and at that point um yeah, I guess you could take the time to actually replace your drums uh, on, via tape and MIDI. Yeah, well, how they, I don't know if you remember how Tom Morris explained it, but basically they would sample 
like a hit of Pete's snare drum or Pete's kick or one of his toms or whatever into this TC Electronics digital delay that actually yep. was capable of. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was capable of making like a one second sample. Right. And then they would take the signal out of the the erase head, which was the last head in line of the tape machine. They would take the signal out of the erase head and trigger the sample on the TC native, a TC electronics device, and then set the the dwell. There was a knob where you could set the dwell so that it would actually sync up to the actual hit and then hit record on another track on the tape and then just record that. Fucking voodoo, man. <laughs> the stuff they had to go through. It, unbelievable. And that's after, of course, they took razor blades to all the various takes and, and made Das yeah. Uber take. And then they could do this particular process, you know. It, it, it changed so much. But uh, were you, just out of curiosity, were you ever in the military or do you have military in your family? My sister. Um, but here, here's, here's the long story. My sister was in the U.S. Navy. I had every intention of going into the U.S. Navy, and actually, I uh, when I was in high school, I graduated in 1989, and when I, I took the a test called the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, and I'm not sure if they still give that test anymore to high schoolers, but they did when I was in high school, and out of 1,400 questions, I missed two. And, and so I was getting phone calls right and left from every branch of the military service to try to get me in. And uh, uh, I had asthma when I was a very young child. Uh, my last asthma attack was, I think, when I was three or four. And uh, at the time, it, we were not at war with anybody. So the need for military personnel was very, very little. It was very small. There was not an awful lot of demand for military people. So you had to pass the physical aspect of it first and then all the other stuff would just kind of fall into play so uh even though i had all these really crazy high school scores or anything i didn't on paper pass the physical test needed i had a history of asthma and i could have had what was known as uh uh like a like a special permission from from my my congressman uh, but then I just would have been that guy in the barracks that got the, the, the special permission from the congressman. And I didn't ever want to be uh, uh, anybody's special anything. You know what I mean? Like I, I wanted to earn everything that I ever got. And so I didn't go uh, into the military, but my sister answered the call and she wound up going uh, into the U.S. Navy and later on to the Office of Naval Intelligence and then went to the JAG Corps and that kind of thing. And she actually still works uh, for the U.S. government, but she lives in D.C. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I feel like, um, like from the way that you run things, it seems like that's either in your background or almost in your background or in the family or something. Well, I, 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 I'm in, I, I believe it or not, and I don't know if you ever knew this about me, y'all, but you know, I come from a theater background. Okay. Oh, I, I knew that after uh, you started, after I watched you do karaoke in Japan, I knew, <laughs> yeah, I knew about the theater background. Right, right. So, so, um, 
I grew up in an environment where where there was rehearsals and like for instance I would come home from school and I didn't go out and play football with friends or anything like that. I was home from school, I had homework and then I had to go to rehearsals. And by the time I was age 12, I was stage managing my father my father had this theater company, uh, not a theater, but a, thea- a theatrical company that would go into theaters and put on productions. Um, so I was stage managing his shows in Union Theaters at age 12. Because by the time we actually got out of rehearsals and into uh, production at the theater itself, I had already memorized the script and I knew all the set changes and everything by heart. So, so it was just a question of putting on a headset, and these people would take my commands. So, uh, not my well, my not com- I guess commands is the right word. Commands, commands, commands is right. a good word. Commands is the right word, but I mean, you know, yeah. uh, you know. But these people would you know follow my lead, and they would they would do what I said, and 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 these were you know older guys and and unionized guys and. Uh, uh, when I when I came when it came time for me to actually go for my own union card, um, uh, pretty much everybody knew me, and and I got almost a practically unanimous yes across the entire local. Because by the time I'd actually gone for that, I already been working with these people over twenty years. So the the whole discipline of schedules and doing everything on time and getting it right was just there from a young age. That's right. I've never I've never understood the idea of being late. I've never understood the idea of making people wait. I mean, it's happened. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, but I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's see if we can get into a time capsule. Do you remember 10 years ago sitting in the lounge, back lounge of a bus explaining to me and my band what we needed to understand before going to Japan. Like, what, you remember we had that pre-tour meeting where you're like, you're going to have to get this and this together on your IDs, and these are the rules. Like, you can and can't do this, and Paul McCartney this, and Paul McCartney oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Do you, you remember that? Do you, does this... Do you remember this? Yeah, I, I pretty much told you straight up that like there is a zero tolerance for dope or anything like that in Japan. I mean, yeah, you you laid you laid everything down, but you laid it down from passport regulations to cultural norms to how we're expected to behave at the venue to. Paul McCartney's weed thing. I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through that again, um, just so that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna have to set my wayback machine here, but uh, I know that I was uh, one of the things that, if, and this is to anybody that's going to go get a visa to go to Japan. Understand that the Japanese are a very tolerant culture, but at the same time, they're sticklers for detail and they're sticklers for being on time and being respectful. Okay, they will show you all the respect in the world, but if you don't give it back, then you're probably never going back. And 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 that's an important thing to remember. So, if they tell you that 
you need to have your visa ready by this certain date and that these documents better be in your visa packet and that have you ever been arrested? Don't lie. Have you ever been arrested? If so, where, when, give details. You know, you you think you may be slick and cool and all that, but you're not going to get one over on the Japanese. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, uh, they're very, very detail-oriented and uh, it, was, it was important because, I mean, you guys, for the most part, just so you understand it, y'all, I, I liked your band. There's very few bands that I actually like liked. Okay, so I liked working for Dath. I th- I thought that that you know I, I loved the songs. I mean, I matter of fact, Dath uh, was one of those. Uh, the two records that you had were were amongst my everyday playlist for our tours. So oh, that's cool. so Dath music has actually been played on every continent I've ever worked on uh, since 2007 and beyond. How does that sound? Nice. Okay. Sounds so, good. Yeah. So, and and on top of, and I'm not just buttering your muffin here, but I mean, I, the production sounded great, but the songs also fit the crowd. You know, they, they fit the crowd. I mean, they even fit, uh, uh, the when I was out with Symphony X, they were part of the playlist for Symphony X. It even fit that crowd. You know, I never had anybody, even though there's a lot of screaming in the vocals or whatever, but that didn't matter. You know, that kind of thing. It, 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 it fit. So anyway. I liked your band, so I wanted to see your band actually do well and succeed. So I tried to give you as much information that I could that would actually benefit you. And 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 I remember there was a couple of like little tiny things that uh, that were a little strange with some of the visa applications. I don't want to go into detail. Can I go into details or no? I shouldn't go into details. You, you just don't name names. Okay, yeah. There has been some arrests. Uh, you know, some people had some issue, issues with the law. And <laughs> Yes. And yes, they did. They had some issues with the law. But because it was reported, right, and it was truthful and factual on the the visa application, it went through and you guys wound up going. You know, and they, they, I remember we got the visas back pretty quickly, actually. I, um, uh, I remember we, while we were out on Ozfest, we, we did all the paperwork on the, because, you know, a, a y'all can tell you, you know, Ozfest 2007, you, you started, the day started at nine o'clock in the morning. The first band was on at 11 a.m. You played for 20 minutes and then you had two minutes to disload your, sh- or unload your show from the stage and two minutes to get your show on the stage and start. Okay. And that was, you had five, literally five minutes in between. And then of course you had, or what was the name of that one DJ dude that kept bringing you out on stage? What was his name? Do you remember his name? Uh, something Dave. Yeah, he's like, who wants to drink Jaeger? Who wants to drink Jaeger? And then, the- oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> and then there was you on stage doing shots of Jaegermeister with this freaking guy. Because I think you guys were sponsored at the time, right? Weren't you sponsored? Did- uh, yeah, that's officially or unofficially. They gave us a lot. Who wants to drink some Jaeger? So getting you guys on stage and getting you playing also included that who wants to drink some Jaeger moment with this guy. So we actually wound up getting you guys on stage like about three and a half minutes or something like that because then there was that stupid little break. And on top of that, uh, OzFest did not have a set schedule. There were only three bands that actually went on at a set time every day. And that was uh, Behemoth, um, uh, Devil Driver, and Hatebreed. And everybody else that was on the tour was on this revolving schedule. So, so 
you were either going on first or second or third or fourth or fifth, and then the next day you're going on second, third, fourth. You know, in other words, there was no – you couldn't plan your day. You just knew that it was going to suck from 9 a.m. <laughs> to 4 p.m. So, so <laughs> by the time <laughs> – Am I right? Am I right? It was going to be hot and shitty, and it was going to no, suck. You're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason to it. You just had to go with it, and you literally did have five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes, or you get in trouble. Yeah, two minutes up, two minutes down, and if you went on late, oh well, asshole. I guess you're cutting a song, you know. <laughs> or better find a shorter song to play. Or find instead. a shorter song to play, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was funny because I mean, you know, Nile—they're famous for having these like you know twenty-minute-long songs. They played four songs. That was it. Nile played four songs every day. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that was ridiculous. But we did. We got all the documents done somehow while on that tour. That's right. I and, remember and, that. And this, and this is also 2007 where this idea of like Wi-Fi and all that nonsense, that just really didn't exist. So you were we, – we were lucky enough uh, – Nile, you know, you know, uh, Dath and Nile were doing off dates uh, between Ozfest, so every two shows we would have uh, uh, an off date. So that off date would allow us to be in a building that would either have like one cable that had internet on the other side of it, or maybe an internet router that had Wi-Fi, which is amazing. In 2007, so so uh, yeah, that was difficult to get all that together, and 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 uh, but we did. We got it all together. We got the paperwork sent in. We got all of our pa- uh, passports and paperwork back. Everybody, everybody did what they were supposed to do. And then and then when you're in Japan, okay, like let's say for the sake of art, you're at the hotel and they tell you, okay, lobby call is at 8 a.m. We leave the lobby at 8.02 a.m., okay? At 7.59 and 30 seconds, the car will pull up to the front of the hotel (laughs) to pick you up. And you'd better be in that van by 8.02 a.m. Because at 8.07 a.m., the train leaves for, 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 you know, uh, the, you know, the train leaves for your next show. And if you're not on it, you miss it. And now a lot of money is wasted. And you start wasting the Japanese money. And guess who's not coming back to Japan? You, you know, uh, I can, I can, there's a band that wasted a lot of Japanese money that's probably never going back to Japan that will remain nameless. Oh, the one that didn't show up? Yeah, the one that didn't show up and then, and then put something on their MySpace about how they couldn't get their visas in time. It's like, uh, what? You know what I mean? They didn't, they didn't have Punchy helping them. That's part of it, right? (laughs) Well, that, that was kind of, what I was getting at with going through that is that without having you to help us, we would have never gotten that shit together Um, because no one would have laid it out for us just point by point by point, what you have to do, how you have to go about it. And it would have been a disorganized disaster and who knows if it would have happened. Yeah. Well, if I didn't like you, I would have just left you to the wolves. (laughs) You, I mean, you also told us a lot about how to behave there. And yeah, how to and, not get arrested and yeah, and for the most part, everybody behaved. Really, I mean, there yeah. was no there was no problems, and, and you know, everybody got along. We were out with Zyklon. Uh, uh, Zyklon was the headlining band, and uh, everybody got along. There was no problems. Uh, I remember you, because the one particular band didn't show up. 
uh, you guys had to play an extended set, and and uh, and so did Zyklon. They had everybody had to like extend their set by ten or fifteen minutes to try to make up time, uh, you know, because of the 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 show times that were scheduled. And um, everybody did a great job. It was it was uh, it was a really f- enjoyable experience. I I uh, uh, and oddly enough, while I was there with you guys. Um, a band dropped out of the Loud Park Festival, right? And I was able to sign the deal for Nile to play the Loud Park Festival, and I happened to have all of their visa information with me in my laptop. So I was able to file all the visa paperwork while I was in Japan. And two weeks later, we were back in Japan. I was back in Japan with Nile doing Loud Park. So it just happens. It just goes to show preparedness and information and knowing what to do at the right time does get things accomplished. So there you especially, go. Especially in an industry that's generally chaotic. Oh, those, yeah. Those who have their shit together prevail. Dude, and loaded with people that I don't know how they get jobs. I got to tell you, man, working at the theater... Uh, I, I, I work with a production manager, um, and, and he lets me know about all the tour managers that just don't return emails, don't return phone calls, uh, uh, you know, about advances and that kind of thing. Um, and it boggles my imagination. How do these people get work? And how do they stay employed? Whose cock are they sucking? I mean, like... like <laughs> For lack of a better term, of course, you know, but but how is that possible? Because I could never imagine running my show that way. I mean, even before cell phones and and before the Internet and stuff like that, man, I made it a point to try to get most of my tour advanced before I even left for the tour so that I had like a little tour itinerary book that was you know printed out of uh, a dot matrix printer and a, and a Xerox machine you know what I mean like like this is just how it was and 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 you know going to pay phones and calling venues and because there were no the cell phone just really didn't exist or it did but it was so expensive that no tour budget could ever afford to have one out there so so unless you were Mr. Cool Guy and you were playing big rooms but you know I was doing clubs at the time and and you you know, you try to do it as gorilla as you can. So, so I, I don't get it how some of these people stay employed. I really don't. Well, I, I feel like there's um, very little experience when it comes to being organized and professional in a lot of the music industry. So they don't even know that they don't even know what's wrong because they don't have anything to compare it against. Okay. Once you have the experience of working with someone like you, or if you come from a business background or a military background or something like that, then you'll know that it's fucked up. But if you don't have that, you know, if, I mean, if you don't have someone to show you or some sort of a good background where that would be instilled in you, how would you know? No, fair enough. You know, fair enough. But, but, um, which is a problem. Yeah, but, but if you get to a building and everything's a bunch of chaos, then then there's only one person to point at, and that's your management. 
That's your tour manager. He's the guy that's in charge of controlling the chaos. That's his gig. That's what he does. That's his primary function is controlling the chaos. And if you're an artist that's making a tour manager's life so impossible that he can't control the chaos for you, then you're the asshole. (laughs) How many of those have you dealt with? Uh well, you know, everybody has their moments, okay? You know, everybody has their moments of coolness. Every has their, everybody has their moments of like, dude, I hate you, you know? Um, so, so, I mean, I, I have been very, very fortunate that either I have gained the respect of the people that I'm working for to the point where they don't make my life difficult or I'm so organized that they have nothing to complain about. One of the two. One of the two. It's pretty great. So, uh, hey, I've got some questions here from our audience. Fire away, damn you. Awesome. We've got quite a few, so I want to get into them. Okay. Um, And these are good, so I'm probably going to butt in on your answers and talk to you about some of them. But uh, here's one from Sasha Riesling, which is, what are your most favorite and least favorite things about touring in Europe? Can I just say something? Yeah, sure. Sweaty cheese. That's my least favorite part. <laughs> God, the sweaty cheese. Guys, get it together. All right, what do you what do you say about this? Well, sweaty sweaty meat and sweaty cheese is not just Europe, um, <laughs> but it's 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 a it's a it's a phenomenon that's phenomenon that's worldwide. Sweaty meat and sweaty cheese. Uh, and if anybody doesn't understand what that means, that's cheese and meat. Uh, like a meat deli tray or whatever that's put out at like 11 a.m. And by 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, since it's not refrigerated, it has sweat on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's what that is. Okay, uh, my favorite thing about touring about Europe is, number one, I'm a history buff. Okay, so uh, anytime I'm anywhere in Europe... Um, I want to know as much as I can about the city that I'm in and its history and it's good and it's bad. Uh, uh, so that's already the first thing is when you're in Europe, you, you know, you're standing in a plaza that's five or 600 years old, or, you know, or you're looking at a building that's, you know, like when you're in Italy and you're in a, you're looking at a building that's 2000 years old, uh, or something that predates Christ, even though you don't believe in him at all. But, uh, <laughs> I believe he existed. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know, I know. I get it. I'm just playing with you. I'm just playing with you, yo. But take it easy. Godless take, it, take it easy, man. Uh, um, no, I mean that's to me that's the best part about Europe. And then on top of it, it actually took me a couple of years of touring Europe to appreciate it. Dude. What? It just made me laugh. No, sorry. Go. Sorry. Go on. It took you a few years to appreciate. Appreciate it. Because at first when I went over there, the only thing I could see before me was all the inconveniences. I mean, we used to make a, there was some running jokes or some sniglets that I came up with to kind of describe certain things in Europe. Like there was the inconvenience store, which is, which is the, the, the convenience store that has nothing in it that you actually want to buy. And you have to buy it through a window because it's after midnight and they don't let you in you know so i call that the inconvenience store and then of course there was the (laughs) the room temperature which was this box that sat in your dressing room and it didn't matter how hot or how cold it was in the room your beverages were always a comfortable 72 degrees fahrenheit (laughs) (laughs) and then it was the you know the squat and plop which is the the toilet that has 
no seat and no bowl. It's a hole in the ground with two places to put your feet and two handles that acted almost like the 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 beginning or the starting point of a ski jumper. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> You know, so I always, I always thought about like, like to me, the first couple of years I was in Europe, like that was what it was to me. It was just a series of inconveniences, and I don't understand why they do things this way, and blah 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 blah, and 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 then it actually took being on a tour where I wasn't on a tour bus and in a van, okay, to really appreciate what Europe was all about because now you could go off the beaten path. You you weren't. You didn't see Europe for just the venues and the coffin that you slept in at night. You know, you you saw Europe as it's driving by you, as you're part of it. If you're even driving, you know, you, I actually had an opportunity to drive while I was there and on my first van tour. And and um, you have it. You you gain a different perspective of it. And when you actually take the time to talk to people and get a feel for, you start to realize how similar you actually are even though you don't you may or may not share a language or may or may not share a culture or even values but uh everybody for the most part is a human being and they all have the same relative desires uh and needs so um to me uh i i i wound up loving being in europe for all of us little quirks and stuff that's a little different, you know, like being closed after 5 p.m. and that kind of stuff. All those little quirks didn't mean as much, again, because now I knew the rules and I knew how to deal with it. And I and I knew how to get around it. And then I but I, I, I also learned to love uh, those idiosyncrasies. I mean, as it you know, I, I'm, I married a European woman, you know, I I. Uh, um, and and her old world values here in America, uh, to me, represent a little bit of what I miss about Europe. So, uh, it, it, I mean, sure, there's it's like anything else. I mean, there's stuff you can hate. You know, the buses are different; they're not as comfortable. Uh, but there are comfortable versions, and there are they are getting better. You know, um, but it's just different. You know, it's just a different animal, and that's good. That's good because uh, uh, learning about other cultures and being part of those other cultures remind you of where you came from. At least hopefully it should remind you of where you came from. And if you can't see that, then you might be too stupid for this business. (laughs) I agree. So here's one from Nick, which is, what are your top tips for a band about to go on their first major tour? This one happens to be an Australian interstate tour, so eight hours in a van between major cities. Um, the first thing I can tell anybody that's traveling by road, no matter where you are, Europe, America, Australia, South Africa, whatever, if you want to take the roads in South Africa. But anyway, um, uh, you know what? I'll get pass your, on that one. Get your ass out of bed and get on the road and be at the next venue on time. That's that's the reality. You're always better off being 20, 30, an hour minute, uh, 60 minutes late or early, pardon me, than you are being late because then you're just going to be those guys. And all anybody will remember is the fact that you showed up late. And so I it, it, it might suck. <laughs> yep. You're going to. 
You're going to be tired. I'm going to tell you right now, man, if you're in a van and you're traveling eight hours a day and playing, you're going to be real tired when it's all said and done. But you know what? You'll get over it. You go home, sleep for a couple days, whatever. You get over it. Big deal. Big deal. It's not that bad, okay? At the end of the day, it's not that bad. You know, you're out there playing your music. How bad could it possibly be? I agree. I also say... Make sure you know where the gas stations are. Oh, yeah. Well, nowadays with the Google and uh, the Siri and all that shit, there's no reason to not know where anything is. Period. Period. No no reason, but uh, (laughs) I'm sure bands will figure one out. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, plan ahead. I mean, the best thing to do is just plan ahead. And, and, And if someone in your group... Is being a stickler for time or being a, you know, being like a, hey, man, we need to do this or whatever. You know, don't give that guy grief, man. He just has your best interests at heart. And and that guy is going to save your tuchus. He's going to save your ass. He's going to make your band seem the most professional thing yet. It's not. It's, that, not, it, it's good of you to say that because those are the guys in the band that usually get the most hate. But um but you're right. Being late to a venue—that's the shit that people remember. Oh yeah. Um, the 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 dude in the band stressing out over it is the dude who understands that it's important that you have your shit together. I would also say that if you're gonna be doing eight hours, um, that you guys rotate drivers every three oh, yeah. hours. Oh yeah. Road fatalities. Yeah. Talk about being late to the venue. If you're dead, you're late to the venue. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, so, uh, sorry. So, uh, sorry. Uh, a bleeding dagger through the skull couldn't be here tonight. They're dead. Yeah, and uh, you won't get another tour after that. So, no, that pretty much ends your touring career. Yeah. So, definitely um, rotate drivers, and also know who's up the next day. If you guys are a band that likes to drink, um, make sure that you have an understood rule where the guy who's driving first shift. The next day or later on that night is not drinking. And uh, if your rotation is planned well enough, uh, it should work out to where there's not one guy who always gets the shitty end of the stick. Like one guy who never gets to drink or one guy who never gets to hang out or one guy who always ends up driving first after the venue's close or whatever. Yeah, that's Um, not fair. That's not fair, you know, to, to put everything on one guy or whatever. That's not fair. Everybody, you're all in this together. It's, it's, it's like, an, it, and, and if you don't know what that means, then watch Band of Brothers and you'll get it, okay? You know, there may be a sergeant or whatever, but you're all in the foxhole together and you'll all, you'll all survive together if everybody works together as a team. So, you know, get it. Get it. That's the best way I could get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Get it. It's a, it's not a joke, but get it, you know? All right, here's one from Liam Knott, which is, did you talk to bands about doing front of a house for them, or did they find you? Was it through local gigs or something else? Uh, a little well, bit. I know, I know you told the Christian death story. Yeah, a little but... bit of all of the above. I mean, you know, there's definitely... Uh, there's bands that, like, I was like, you know, believe it or not, dude, you're going to laugh. A band that I've always wanted to mix is Striper. <laughs> You're right. I did laugh. Yeah. But I, not because there's anything wrong with that. But just No, cause. no, no. I, I you know why? Because I, I think they're both really awesome guitar players 
and and I always thought that Michael Sweet was kind of like the heavy metal version of Dennis DeYoung, and and since I grew up listening to Sticks as a kid, like like I when 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 Striper came out, I was in high school, you know, and Striper came out, it's like yeah, okay, whatever, the Christian rock, whatever, blah 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 blah. But if if you think they suck, try and play it. Try and you play Soldiers Under Command, and you tell me that they suck. You know what I mean? So I always wanted to play with that or, or mix that band live, and I just I just never had the opportunity. It's just kind of a drag, but I always wanted to. Uh, but I did approach them. I did send them a resume and all that stuff. But they at the time were hiring people out of the uh, Boston area, so uh, I was just kind of not in the running. But um, yeah, I, that, it, it's a mixture of all of the above. I mean, you definitely word of mouth helps more than anything else. And and uh, if you happen to be in a situation where you know you're mixing one band and then another band that happens to be on the tour with you needs an engineer, then you know you can pick up a few extra bucks by doing. That's how I started. That's how Al and I learned. You know, knew each other is because I was already out mixing Nile. And since Doth is going to be uh, the support band for Nile on our off dates, um, then you know they they threw me a couple of bucks and and I mixed them on off dates and I mixed them at the Ozfest as well. So it's kind of a great way to also double dip a little bit and get a little extra money. Uh, you just have to work a little harder. All right, here's one from uh, Charlie, a band, which is. Hello, Juan. When you think of small-time local bands starting its first weekend runs, mini-tours, what kinds of do and don'ts come to mind? Specifically, what would be a good game plan for getting shows from out-of-state venues and promoters? Thanks. Okay. Well, the first thing you have to understand about promoters in general and and, uh, club owners is that they're not in the business to showcase you. Okay, they're in the business of selling tickets or selling drinks at the bar and keeping asses in their building. Okay, or getting asses to their building. Okay, so you as a local band really don't have any value per se uh, to these people because you're you're not selling records or whatever. I mean, you know, that's still, believe it or not, a, a a, a metric. A metric, thank you, uh, by which people say, okay, well, if they're selling 10,000 units, then they're probably going to do a couple hundred people here. Um, if, you, if you're a local band and you're looking to get out and do shows, you know, you're going to have to uh, get ready to put out the pocketbook and pay for your own gas and, and don't expect to get a bar tab and don't expect to get paid or any of that stuff because uh, you're going basically out there to, to prove that you have... Uh, an audience share in the market. So now, if you if you you go down, let's say like let, let's say you're from Florida, right, and you're a Tampa band, and you go down to Miami, okay, and and you might be doing 50, 60 people at the local club in Tampa, but you go down to Miami and nobody knows who you are, then why would that club owner pay you a hundred bucks? He pays a hundred bucks to the band that's on the package that's coming that's gonna, you know, draw four or five hundred people that uh, on Friday. Why would he pay you a hundred bucks? So uh, the best advice I can give to anybody that's that's trying to not to do it is remember why you're doing it to begin with. It's because you like to present your art in front of people. And and if you need money to present your art in front of people, then uh, uh, 
get a job and 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 have a job and that allows you to go out and then have money to go do that until people are willing to pay you for your art. Um, I can give you an example. Going back to going back to my dad, okay, and the theater company, right? The theater company was a non for profit organization, so all of the ticket revenue that came in from any of the productions that we put on basically went back into the cost of the production and my dad didn't make any money on it. He did it as a giant hobby. It was just a big hobby. It was just something to do. Now, down the road, there were like these actual paying gigs where they're doing concerts or whatever at the state fair and, you know, he puts together a band and a few singers and dancers or whatever and there's a a contract that allows for salaries to be paid because there's not really any overhead. But when there's a gaggle of overhead and you're doing like Broadway shows and you have to pay royalties and you have a, a mm-hmm. union musicians, union stagehands, there's a lot of hands out. There's no money left over. And so it's a non-for-profit. You're doing it because you want to. So so if you're in a band uh, and and you're expecting to make money, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. You're doing you this do, I'm sorry. You do need to look at it like a hobby, at least for the first few years. I can tell you that with my band... Um, right around the time that we stopped, about four years into being signed, was when we were finally starting to get past breaking even on tours. We were finally getting to the point where it was starting to round the, the corner. Um, and that's cool and all. Uh, we decided to stop for other reasons, but like you, you do kind of need to look at it like a hobby, and I, not in a derogatory way. More just like in a, you had to pay more into your passion than your passion will pay out to you. Yeah, it's not field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. That's just nonsense, okay? Now, every once in a while, somebody gets lucky, and the next thing you know, they are the next best things in sliced bread. But, I mean, there's a lot of initial investment that goes into anything that's worth doing. And I, I remember, I remember y'all, I remember you guys had that, that airport shuttle that you all lived in. You know, Jesus. remember that airport <laughs> shuttle thing? And, and yeah, till, till it broke. <laughs> yeah, but you guys had to pay for that. That was yours. That you had this initial investment of this vehicle and the time that it took to do that and the gas and all that stuff and and I know you guys weren't making really anything on the off dates on Nile and and everybody that was on Ozfest had to pay for the privilege to be there that was a buy on tour for everybody that was there you know so <laughs> quite the buy on yeah, it was add. expensive just to go out there and put on a twenty-minute commercial, and 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 so so if you think, oh man, they're at Ozfest, they're making all kinds of money, bullshit, man. They were selling like twenty shirts a day, tops, and and because you're in competition with thirty bands and including Ozzy fucking Osbourne, and 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 that you know, uh, 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 monolith of power that they are and that organization. So I mean, you're out there putting on a commercial for twenty minutes, and you're paying for the privilege to do it, just like as if you were running television ads on a local TV station. Um, so, and but unfortunately, other than not not being a videotape of an ad that's playing, you're out there actually doing it and sweating and, and having to deal with all the other expenses involved. So, getting signed and being on your first tour is not the end of your career. It's the beginning of a very long journey that may or may not result in success. But you don't do it for that reason. You do it because you want to do it. Yeah, exactly. So here's one from John Garcia. 
which is I'm going overseas to assist a TM and do front of house in Eastern Europe next month. What's the biggest thing I should know? I'm from the U.S. Thanks. Okay. Well, the first thing you should know is that Eastern Europe is definitely not Western Europe. Okay, uh, uh, although a, a lot has changed since the Cold War ended um, in a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries, especially like you know, Latvia or Estonia or stuff like that, um, uh, you're not going to always run into people that speak English per se. And there, if you're out there with a band that has like a, a pretty like like anti-Christian message, there's going to be. Uh, people that are are um, very much against you because there is hardline religious people from so many years of of communist oppression where they weren't allowed to be religious. So so um, be prepared for lots of bureaucracy because even though the Soviet Union is gone, they still have all that concept of paperwork and paper trail and and fill out this form and get this stamp and do this and do that. Uh, But primarily and most importantly is don't think you're in America. Okay? You are not. (laughs) Okay? You are in a foreign country, and you are subject to their laws. They don't give two rats asses about your cracker ass in Eastern Europe. Period. End of story, okay? They didn't hack your election. They're going to hack your ass in a jail cell. (laughs) That's what they're going to do, okay? All right? Like, you know what I mean? They're... they're (laughs) Oh, I can I can go on and on, dude. Go on. I can go on and on, but man, Eastern Europe is not Western Europe. Okay, so but but at the same time, it is wonderful. Okay, some of the best food, some of the best vodka, some of the coolest people with the best party attitude are going to be in your face because they love it. They have such passion in their hearts, and and and. They want to share that passion with you. However, if you cross the line, someone will hand you your ass. And they won't think twice about it. Not even thinking twice about it. I, 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 there are real beautiful people over there. But there are also people that will stomp your Yankee ass all day long, just so they can say they did it. So be nice, be respectful, and enjoy it for what it is. Now, if you're assisting a tour manager, I got I I know you can't answer this question, but I gotta ask. I'm assuming that this is a pretty large tour. I'm assuming that this tour is probably in larger venues. Um because anybody that's on a club level tour that needs assistance probably needs to be replaced. And I'm just going to say that really quick. And then, and then we can move on. You no, know, I think you're probably right. So there so, you have it. Man, uh, I, I'm just thinking back. To, some of my scariest experiences on tour have been in Eastern Europe, for sure, where someone did cross the line. Not in my band, thankfully. But the whole tour had to uh, pay for it. Um, very scary stuff. You don't want to fuck around over there. It's not no, like 
But it's, it's not beautiful. Like fucking around in Atlanta. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful, and the people are beautiful, and 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 they will give till it hurts. They they love it that you're there and that you're there and, and, and entertaining them. But man. Don't cross that line, especially with Eastern Euro 5.0. Don't mess with those border guards. You better have your paperwork handy. You better not act like a drunk asshole at the border. You better be awake. You'd better be alert. You would better be like like you're in front of the judge himself, like you're in front of Judge Judy. You better be that alert. <laughs> so here's one from Andre Six. Two similar questions. Is he your- is he Nikki Six's brother? I think so, okay. actually. So um, what are your first steps or considerations when tuning a PA in the venue? And what are your first steps or considerations when the band gets on stage the first few minutes of the mix? Okay. Great question, actually. I There's two different kinds of engineers in the world, okay? There's these guys that show up with their smart rig and a little microphone, and they blow a bunch of pink noise into the room, uh, uh, and then whatever the microphone tells them they're hearing, that's what they assume they're hearing. And now they've tuned the PA and they walk away from it all. Okay. Then there's guys like me that, that appreciate the idea of a smart live rig, but I'm going to automatically assume that that room has been pink noised before I got there. Okay, and that a system tech has dealt with that. Now it is time for me to mold that PA system to what I need it to do based on the band that I'm going to mix. Okay, so, and and what I like to do is tune the PA and tune the room to what I consider to be a flat channel response. Okay, because if I'm at the console and I'm having to really color each instrument with the EQ, then I haven't really done my job right with the house graphic. The house graphic to me represents what a flat channel should be in the room. So I always pick, there's a, everybody's got their favorite song, okay, that they, that, and what I usually like to tell people is pick something that you know what it sounds like. You know what the song's supposed to sound like, okay? Uh, you go to a room, and when you turn on that PA and you have a flat channel that that the the CD is running through or your MP3 player or whatever you're using, AAC player, whatever, and suddenly you listen to it and it's really super bright, that means the room is super bright. And you go and you dial the brightness out of that EQ. Or if it's too mid-range, you dial it out. You get it to where it sounds like how you want it, how you're used to it sounding, given the fact that you may be in a really boomy room, you may be in a really dry room, you may be, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into it. And keep that in mind. Walk around while the music is playing so that you know what it sounds like at the mix position, as well as the center of the room, as well as up against the barricade, to the left, to the right of the room, etc. So you get an idea of how everybody's going to hear this PA while you're using it. And you might be very happy to find out that your mix position sounds really, really good. Uh, or you might be really disappointed to find out in order to make this room sound good for everybody else, you have to mix the PA so that it's really bright where you're at. And that might hurt your ears or whatever. Uh, that's that's what I usually do first. And, I, and my favorite was uh, Sensooked by Ramstein. I loved that. To me, that, that song had everything in it because uh, it's got this 
kind of continuous loop that keeps repeating over and over and over and over again so that I don't have to wait for the chorus to come around again. I don't have to wait for the verse to come around again. I don't have to do that, any of that stuff. That It's tuned to a 440, so it's not tuned to like Z, you know, where everything's all low and there's no note anymore. It's just this blah, 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 blah. That, that, that's not musical. And, and it doesn't really give you an idea of what the room sounds like and what the PA is capable of doing. If you're, if you're using something with a bunch of screaming, again, that's not musical. It's not going to give you an idea of notes because keeping in mind that all frequencies represent notes and, and those notes have dirty cousins that hang out with them. So if you, like, for instance, if you have like a room that's really friendly in the 315 range, you can bet your ass it's going to show up in 630. You can bet your ass it's going to sound up in 1.2K and so on and so on and so forth up the, up, up the spectrum. So, you know, you can you can do that and you can rob Peter to pay Paul by not sending frequencies into a PA that don't need to be amplified. You're going to rob yourself of overall power. It's kind of like when you're mixing a record, eh, y'all, and, you know, you, zero is the ultimate, that's it, that's all you got mm-hmm. in a digital mix. And so you start you start running high-pass filters and low-pass filters and stuff like that because you don't need it, but it's taking up space, and you can get an extra 4 or 5 dB out of the mix if you just maybe shelf it up to 40 hertz here and shelf it down to, you know, 8K here, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So so you can, you can do that because, you know, we're not dogs. We're not going to hear all this stuff. And one thing is for sure, no one ever got a fucking Grammy for the best snare drum sound in a 1,000 capacity room or less that shit just don't even happen not even in norway so so <laughs> so keep that in mind okay <laughs> <laughs> next question um from daniel luces which is what's the most important technique or tool or attitude or secret weapon whatever thingy to keep handy for doing live sound considering all the variables such as different room room size pa pa specs etc well what I started doing from 2005 on was I carried my own mic package, at least, okay? At least carry the microphones for your drums. Um, that way, that at least can stay consistent. And it doesn't really take up a lot of room in your in your suitcase. And if you're on a, a van or a bus tour, you know, your microphone package may take up like a, like a small like rubber tub from Walmart or something like that, you know? Uh, But having your own microphones every day prevents you from having to go into... Well, again, this really just depends on the level of touring you're at, but having your own mics every day... That's a pretty easy one, though. It's not like what you're talking U47s. No, man, 57s, 604s. I mean, really, uh, try to carry a good passive microphone collection. Uh, and and there's a you know condensers are all nice and everything, uh, but man, when they break, they make you really mad that they broke. Whereas you know if a 57 breaks, yeah, it's a hundred bucks, big deal, but it's not a thousand bucks. Because again, like I was saying in the in the earlier segment. There's no such thing as 
a Grammy for best snare drum performance in a 200 capacity room, you know, it doesn't exist. And, and I actually get a big kick out of seeing these dicks that show up with, um, with like Neumann channels and stuff like that. And I'm I'm just like, dude, really? Like, really you suck that bad, huh? That you, that you need to justify bringing $3,000 worth of preamp everywhere you go. It's like, dude, nobody cares. No one's going to know. No one will give one rat's ass about the Ashley preamp that you put on the bass DI. Nobody cares. You know what I mean? Like, so, so, so nobody, it's not going to work. It's not going to work in this environment. You're not making a record. You're just justifying bringing a bunch of equipment around. So that means that you're actually probably not that good of an engineer to begin with if you need all this expensive gear to make it happen. So, so, um, at the end of the day, any engineer worth their salt can put nothing but 57s and 58s on a stage and make it sound good. If you can't do that, then you're in the wrong business. I agree. So here's one from Keegan Jackson, which is, in-ear systems for live use confuse the hell out of me. What can I expect if I bring a full in-ear system to a venue? Um, in-ear monitors, wireless transmitters, and a mixer. Should the house engineer be able to send the signals to our mixer? Is this stuff that should be talked about with the front of house engineer in advance? I'm just not sure how the actual signals would get to our mixer. Well, look, if you're bringing ears to uh, a show and you don't have somebody to drive that, whether it be a band member or an actual like guy that you hired to be your engineer to do your ears, then you're risking blowing up your head or your units themselves, okay? Because they can only take so much signal, you know, that it starts to peak out, and then you start blowing up little transistors and stuff like that. So, um, as far as getting signals to your your rig, you can do a couple different things that would actually facilitate that if you're if you're playing in a small room where say monitors are controlled from front of house but you still want to maintain control of your own monitors okay no big deal you can go and get splitter channels to put in your rack and bring the necessary cabling and your inputs will go into the splitter channels and then you can feed the house out of your splitter rack but now you have got control of your own gain structure, your own signal path, and then you can do it yourself. I mean, nowadays, you know, you can mix your own ears with iPads and Android tablets and, you know, X32s and that kind of thing. It's much more affordable than it was, say, even five years ago, and much more feasible than it was, say, five years ago. But you've just now added an additional 15 minutes of setup time. Okay, so until you're at the level where you really need ears, what you really need more than anything else is monitor discipline. And this is something that I, I, I is so important from bands that are starting out to bands that have had Grammys now, okay, and, and, and are, have been in the business for 30, 40 years. No, you don't need everything in your monitor. You really only need what you have to cue from. So pretty much, unless you're living next to the drummer, kick and snare, and maybe your vocal. Or if you, uh, I always had kick, snare, and uh, the backing track because that way, right? I and just you're always knew exactly where I was yeah, at all you, times. You cued Didn't off need of anything it. else, right? Yep. That's right. But these guys that are like, yeah, dude, I need a little bit of bass over here, and hey, dude, can I get some of that fucking floor tom in here? And dude, I need hi hat, and dude, I need this, and dude, I need that. It's like actually, you don't. You need to turn your fucking amp down. 
okay, and and realize you're playing a 200 capacity room or a 300 capacity room, and you only put in your monitor what you need. And if you need more than that, then maybe you need to be at rehearsal more often. <laughs> I love you. All right, so um, Martins is asking, could you talk about the feasibility of touring with an all digital setup? All effects run with automations from plugins, DSP options, how many backups are needed, buffer sizes and latency issues, etc. Thanks. Oh wow. Okay. Now <laughs> I, I, I've that's a, that's a bit of an ambitious question. Wow. Um, I've yeah. seen I've seen from the simplest setups to the most really complex setups. Um, I'm going to digress a little bit. One of the coolest setups that I ever saw, okay, was in the early 90s, okay? And it was this band called T-Ride, okay? T-Ride, like T-Ride, okay? And at the time, I wasn't even touring yet. I was like a like a, a loader like station. Like T-Rex, but a T-Ride. T-Ride, right, right, right. And I was like, I, at the time, I was working at this place called The Rocket Club in Tampa, Florida, right? And T-Ride was this band. They had just signed to Hollywood Records, and they were on tour. And just to give you an idea of who's in this band, the drummer was Eric Valentine. You know the producer Eric Valentine, who the, did "Hey Now the, Eric, You're a Rock Eric Star." Val Eric Valentine is a hero. Okay, I love I love Eric Valentine. Then you work. need to check out this band. He was the drummer in this band, and he was also the producer. This is one of the first things that he ever did. Well, I am definitely going to check it out okay. now. Like, right. And I know a lot of listeners of this are Eric Valentine fanboys. So uh, okay. yeah, thank you. All right, so check this out. Right. This, this is what I understand how this, what happened with these guys. They signed this massive deal with Hollywood Records, okay, where they got like some crazy advance, all right? And they went and bought like tape machines and a console and all these like effects and samplers and all that. And, and they used an Atari 1040 ST as their sequencing computer. Okay, and and they made their record, and then when they went on tour, Eric Valentine would would had a laptop version. It was called the Atari Stacy. He had this laptop version, and he would drive this giant like thirty space rack that was double. It was two. It was like uh, two fifteen spaces built together. It was basically their studio rack that they put in a road case and took on the road with them, right? And this thing sent MIDI information to the guitar rig, the bass rig, the vocal effects, the 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 EQs, all this stuff, and all this stuff was automated off of this Atari computer. And so it was a central nervous system, basically. Essentially, yeah, because this is the days before you could actually record audio onto a computer. So it would just send these MIDI commands, and then he had these like um, Akai samplers that had all the backing vocals and all that stuff like that that would play. And he slaved to a click. He had you know he wore headphones and listened to. A click the entire night and and it was a three piece and and uh it was it was just a, the coolest thing to watch because if you're watching from the side of the stage all of this shit is changing channels and eqs that had this digital eq that would change positions and do all this stuff in real time while the band was playing the guitar player had no foot pedals nobody had anything because all the guitar effects changes were happening in this rack right but this is like the early 90s to give you an idea like 92 91 like that's that's how cool this is. But anyway, that's so ahead of its time. That's right. He was doing this crazy shit God. back then, and then the band broke up like a year later, and he went on to be this badass like producer. So there you have it. Um, so 
Once a genius, always a genius, I guess. There you have it. So, so, uh, but you should check it out. It's called T Ride, and they even have like music videos. So you can actually like go to YouTube and look look up T Ride. They have a couple of music videos, and and the best way to describe it is like this kind of like really super tight and tech cock rock. <laughs> <laughs> what a description. Super tight, super tech, like great guitar playing, you know, awesome singing, just like that super high, you know, like early 90s voice, you know, Sebastian Bachy kind of voice, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, but super tech, like super cool. Anyway, uh, and all their songs are three minutes or less. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the the, album, the album's done in like thirty minutes. You know what I mean? It's like that. So, all right. So anyway, I digress. That's the the, the most automation I've ever seen in my life. Okay, uh, at least on a low on a small club level. Okay, now. Broadway shows automate all kinds of things, including lighting cues. Everything uh, goes off of a triggers off of a computer, uh, uh, backing tracks, etc. Now, what a lot of bands are doing these days when they're taking tracks on the road, they'll actually have. First Office dispels the myth that Macintoshes don't crash. Bullshit. They crash, and that is why guys are carrying two at a time with these radial DIs that do an auto-switching thing. So they have both Macintoshes running in synchronization with each other, and if one fails, the other one takes over, and the radial DI does this automatic switching thing. Okay, But these are guys that are running like 20, 30 tracks of tracks in the background on top of their band playing. You know, so so um, I've seen a lot of those acts recently that, you know, come through my theater. So I get to actually kind of see what's going on. Uh, so that's like a very common thing. But um, uh, the I guess the original question is, is how much automation, latency, et cetera, whatever. Um, the first thing that I could I could I could tell you is that if you don't have your own system tech or your own guy that's there to make sure that nothing goes wrong, then the least amount of things that you can make go wrong, the better you are when you go to your live performance. So if, like, let's say for the sake of argument that you have um, uh, a project file that you're using as backing tracks and it's like 16 tracks wide and, uh, you know, consider doing a premix down to two tracks and just take your guess because if you're at that level then you're probably only playing in front of 100 people anyway or 200 people anyway and again there's no grammys being awarded you know what i mean so uh in regards to vocal effects i would not trust that to uh, a daw to generate vocal effects for me even though theoretically you could uh i would just Try to do it as minimalistic as you possibly can, uh, you know, uh, because you're ultimately going to at some point it will fail. And when you fail, you'll just be known as that Millie Vanilli band that failed. You know what I mean? And that and that and yeah, the audience isn't going to distinguish between what's in your tracks and what's not in your tracks. And they're not going to understand why. It makes sense to have certain things in the tracks. That's right. Well, it, other things not. That's right. It just happened. You know, this actually happened to White Zombie years ago. Uh, White Zombie had that more human, got a human song, right? And they played this MTV Video Awards thing. That was a great, great impression of the song, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, so um, they pl they were playing and the drummer got off the click. 
and and oh, just and, and progressively got off and got off and got off and got off. And what wound up happening was their engineer just pulled all the tracks out of the mix because it was starting to get cacophonous. And what was left behind was this very thin very crappy sounding band because all the meat and potatoes was actually on the tracks because they were that dependent on them. So you... It happens. Yeah, so you're actually better off uh, only putting things on track that isn't represented on your stage. So, I mean, I understand, you know, your keyboard player may not have eight arms, so he can't play all those parts. Okay, that's fine. You know, you're singing and you're backing singing. You know, there's only three of you, but you have six-part harmony. Okay, put the other three parts on there. You know what I mean? Like, okay, there's no tambourine player. Okay, put the tambourine on it, whatever. You know, that's okay. That's all fine and dandy. But if you start supplementing your band with instrumentation that's already on the stage and you're trying to get some local sound guy that knows nothing about your band to mix that and make it sound good, you will fail. You will fail. You will fail. (laughs) So here's one from Zach Barlow. Hey, Juan, I live in Oklahoma and most our venues here are just old warehouses, a metal box with short ceilings, or outdoors, a stage in a field or parking lot. They have little to no personality and sound here is usually terrible especially in metal. Lately, most touring bands are switching to modelers and ISO cabs, which really don't seem to help in a crappy room. The tones are better, but they're still played in a poor listening environment. The crowd energy suffers because the sound is bad, and of course, the artists feed off their lack of energy, leaving everyone disappointed. In the recording world, we have plenty of time to find the problems with our listening environment and ways to fix it. But in a live world, you have no choice but to work with what you have each night. My question is, how do you make the most of a bad room? And what do you do on your end to try and keep the crowd engaged when you sense the artists are losing them? Well, that's okay. um, a, a multi-part question. And there's a couple things. I'll just answer it in a, a kind of... How do you solve every single thing wrong with live sound? There you go. Thank you. Uh, um, well, first off, I'm going to be the first person to uh, not be a hater of modeled guitar tones uh, on in a live environment. I'm going to be the first person to applaud the move. Do it. Do it. The move towards the technology because in all fairness, okay, as good as any one particular amplifier is, if you need multi-tonal concepts in your live performance because your guitar tone has to engage different types of emotions and you need a modeler to do that, then that's just like saying using an air ratchet in the garage is for pussies. You know what I mean? Like, that's ridiculous. A tool is a tool for the type of person that is that's using it. So I'm not going to... I'm going to say that mo- guitar modeled preamplifiers or, you know, uh, pods and, and V amps and, and lines, you know, all that stuff. That's, that is a tool that is used by the best of bands. Okay. One of my favorite bands happens to be a band that I also mixed was 12 is 12 foot ninja. And those guys use the Variac system where they're sending an ethernet signal into a processor to get tone. And dude, those guitar tones that those guys put out are so cool and so alien that that it doesn't matter that there's not an amplifier. It's unique 
and and it represents what that band is trying to convey as their art. So so um, you know, ha- hats off to what they're doing, and and not only that, but like because of that technology, he's able to make his six string sound like a twelve string and change tunings from song to song without changing guitars. So that is something that your typical old school guitar player into an amp can't do or ever imagine doing without carrying all kinds of extra equipment. And again, organic schmanic, okay? The people that listen to music these days listen to it on 99-cent fucking headphones, and they don't really know the difference anyway. They just know that they like music, okay? So that's 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 that on the guitar amplifier. And hate me, all you purists, hate me all you want. But you know what? You're a dying fucking breed. And the, and, and the, the pure... The, you the can't re- fight the future. You cannot fight the future. You're also probably the same people that, are, that refuse to record to fucking computers. Well, guess what? In Enjoy your fucking budget because you ain't getting none. Okay, so so have fun calibrating your head, asshole. Anyway, so <laughs> so <laughs> how about that for intense for no reason? Okay, so that's that. Now um, it's unfortunate that a lot of venues don't spend the money that it takes to acoustically treat the rooms and then pump live music into it, thinking that oh, the when there's people in the room, it doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, you know. Uh, uh, rooms need to be acoustically treated. If you're going to be doing music uh, and you and, and you're going to be charging people for the privilege of coming to see it, you know, spend a few hundred dollars and and put up some curtains, put up some camo net, do anything to diffuse the sound, make your room sound better. More people will come to your room if it sounds better. If it's enjoyable to watch a show there, people are going to come to your room. And while you're at it, fix your fucking toilets and clean your bathrooms. You know what I mean? While you're at it. You know what I mean? Like, like the. I mean, if you're already fixing the sound, may as well. You might as well. I mean, take a little friggin' pride. You know, add a toilet seat to the toilet. You know what I mean? And a, and a door. You know? I was about to say a door would help too. <laughs> a door. You know, while you're at it. You know what I mean? So, so, um, so it's unfortunate, you know, uh, that you that the venues around you don't have uh, the acoustically treated room environment, and that things tend to sound poopy. But I can tell you that a guitar amp ain't gonna make it sound any less poopy. You know what I mean? Like it 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 is what it is. You know. Um, and unfortunately, until the scene grows in your area, you're probably not gonna get a better venue. Um, uh, because you know money talks and 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 bullshit walks, and if if there's going to be a guaranteed thousand people a night for shows in that area, then there's going to be a, a a venue that's going you know competition. The market will always overtake nonsense any day of the week. So so uh, there's always going to be somebody that's got a better idea and more money, and he'll do it uh, just because he wants it. So there's that. And what was the other part of that question? Hey, y'all, could you repeat it? Because I'm I'm ranting. How do you make the most of a bad room, and what do you do on your end to try and keep the crowd engaged when you sense the artists are losing okay. them? What I guess I, the the culmination of everything leading up to that point. Right uh, now, if the art, if if the fans themselves aren't into what the artist is doing, that's that's really not your fault as a sound engineer. The best you can do is try to make it as as pleasant as possible for the people that are in the room. That's the best you can do, you know. Uh, uh, but, you know, garbage in, garbage out, man. You know, uh, uh, 
polishing turds uh, uh, is 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 an art form. And like you said, you don't have the opportunity to hit stop, rewind, and push play again and see if you can polish it a little better because live sound goes in your ear and out the other ear as quickly as it's played. So um, the as an engineer, you 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 definitely want to. Make sure that what you're hearing is what you're hearing, and that's why I like to. That's why, like I said earlier, that I like to tune a room with something that I'm familiar with already. That gives me an idea of what the room is doing before I start putting microphones on drums and microphones on on guitars. Uh, because if a room naturally carries guitars, then I probably don't need to put an awful lot of it in the mix. Um, if a room naturally carries cymbals, then I probably don't need to put an awful lot of it in a mix. And louder is not always necessarily better. Yep. And final question. This one is from Sasha Riesling as well. He says, I had this one time in Belgium as a TM, so I want to pass this question on. How do you react to older promoters who have seen it all and don't respect you? And he put seen it all in quotations. Okay. Quote, unquote, seen it all. Just not wanting. So, okay, I'll start again. How do you react to older promoters who have, quote, unquote, seen it all? And don't respect you. Just not wanting you to have a smooth experience because they have done whatever it is in the past, especially because you're younger. What experiences did you have when you started out? Question. Okay, great. Actually, a really great question, and it allows me to do a little bit of a rant. Yeah, okay. I think this is a good one to end on. Yeah, this will allow me to do a little bit of a rant because this is this is something about uh, tour management that, that I had to kind of learn Uh as well, I mean, I you know I didn't come out of the gate like oh I'm the best you know what I mean I I uh, I saw that there was a problem that I could fix and I fixed it but that doesn't necessarily mean that I was the most professional version of me that I could have been uh, uh, throughout my career even all the way up and up you know all the way up until you know you never stop improving yourself but I can say this as far as a good starting point for people that that want to get into tour management. And, and and want to come across as the most professional thing that they possibly can. Keep in mind that these older guys have seen a lot. They have they, they've already met a version of you before. Okay, and they really have. They, it's it's. Can I just interrupt real quick yeah. by saying I didn't think this was true until I toured the country various times over and over, and I started to see that you have the same bands. With the local openers, for instance, you see the same bands in every town, but they're different people, but they have the same members. It's almost like you could swap out the bodies and it would be the same people. So you're right. They have seen a version of you. They have seen They've seen a version of you. Yeah. They, it exists. Okay. So, and they've dealt with the most professional version of you. And the least professional version of you and everything in between. Okay. Uh, so as far as a first impression is concerned, I can't tell you how important it is to advance shows. And if anybody doesn't understand what advancing a show is, it's this. It's you have given to you by your booking agent the date, how much money you're going to be making the venue's name, the address, and your contact at the venue. It is up to you as the tour manager at least, at least two weeks before the time you get there to contact that person 
and give them as much information about your show as possible. In exchange for that, get as much information about their venue as possible. Make sure that you go over show times. Make sure that you go over the time you're supposed to be there. What time they want you out of there. Where are you parking? What's the best hotel? How much how much catering you're, is in your budget at this point based on your pre-sales? Uh, what are your pre-sales? Is there anything to drink coffee-wise around there? Uh, where's the nearest 7-Eleven? Find out as much information as you can about that building. Don't rely on Google Earth. Don't rely on any of this stuff because where it says parking for the venue is may not be where you're parking that day, okay? Because there may be a street festival or maybe they have a special spot for you to park. Don't assume anything. Get the information. He'll respect you for that more. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to come across a promoter that has a diff- has is an asshole himself and won't advance, but it doesn't matter. If you've done it, then you have the moral upper hand over this person, okay? And a promoter that has done it before and has done it for a long time will respect you for it before you're even in the room because he knows that you care. Okay, and that's a big deal to someone that's got thousands of dollars riding on your night. Okay, and depending on your level, it could be millions of dollars riding on your night. Okay, now the second thing as a tour manager, which is very important. Okay, you are the face of the band. Not the singer, not the drummer, not the guitar player, none of these people. You. You're the guy that's going to get paid, okay? You're the guy that this promoter is going to hand money to, okay? So when you get ready to do your settlement, you had better know the terms of your contract before you get there. You had better know what your bonus position is, like how many people equal a bonus, etc. You had better know how much deposit was sent in, if at all. And please, for the love of God, don't smell like alcohol or dope, okay? Because this guy is going to be handing you thousands of dollars, potentially, okay? Depending on your level, okay? Hopefully. <laughs> potentially, depending on your level. This guy is going to be doing business with you, okay? And that point is going to be one of the last times he's probably going to ever see you in his life. So the so unless you happen to be coming back again or whatever, but at, always treat your settlement as the last time you're ever going to see someone in their life. Give them a firm handshake, make sure you sign, make sure you know your information. And another thing, The way you present yourself is very important. Yes, I know. There are these hippy-dippy tour managers that walk around in fucking sandals and shorts and T-shirts with upside-down Jesus and all this stuff like that. Okay, whatever. If they happen to be lucky enough to be with a band that is making a lot of money, then a promoter has no choice but to respect that person because he does have to deal with him. Okay, all right. But for the most part, they don't like 
dealing with those kind of guys. They like, especially now in this corporate uh, uh, concert world where you have a live nation that owns a bunch of these buildings and stuff like that. They don't want to deal with some fucking socks with slides, underwear hanging out the top of his fucking shorts, asshole. They don't want to deal with that guy because they, as far as they're concerned, what the hell? How, how did this guy get employed? I don't want to give him money. I have to because the contract says so. But it's not a good representation. And you dress for the job that you want, okay? So you may be with a club band today, but you put your best foot forward. Next time around, somebody will see you and say, hey, you know what? That guy's got his shit together. Maybe we should put him on this tour that we're getting ready to do. This We're doing 1,200 seaters, 2,000 seaters. And then that guy sees you and he's like, hey, man, this guy's got his shit together. His advance is good. His day sheets are up. All the times are accurate. His band is on time, blah, blah, blah. You know, I got this arena tour going out. Maybe I should get him to tour manage my arena tour next thing you know you're tour managing big stuff production managing big stuff you know because you care because you want to do something bigger now if you're just happy being that dirty ass drunk stinky guy who 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 you know rolls out of the van smelling like an asshole and you don't want to be that hundred you want to be in that hundred dollar a night band and you know all all the power to you good luck retiring on that when you're 60 years old good luck because eventually you probably won't be in the game by then. Yeah. Good luck. You're going to be because you're going to be old and you're not going to have anything saved up. You know, you put half of it up your nose, you put the other half of it like, you know, on a bar tab somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? So good luck. You know what I mean? Man, it's so sad that you're not even kidding. It's the truth. I know it's the truth. It's the truth, man. You know, so so I I I always like to tell people that when you when if you're a tour manager, there is no, there's no such thing as doing too much of a good job. There's no such thing. Always be prepared. Always be that guy that's willing to do the right thing at the right time and be prepared to not sleep very much because you're awake before the first guy on the bus is awake and you're asleep after the last guy on the bus is asleep, usually. You run the show. That's right. Anything right that happens is your fault. Anything that wrong that happens is definitely your fault. Okay? So so keep that in mind that you, you you're ultimately making the band happy because you serve at the pleasure of the band. Okay? Like a presidential employee serves at the president uh, the pleasure of the president, <laughs> right? You serve at the pleasure of the band. But if they know that you're doing the best job, and they're not having to come up to you and ask you, dude, what time are we on tonight? Because you should always be able to point at the wall and go, dude, look at the day sheet. Dude, look at the day sheet. I've already done this job. You're now the asshole. Go look at the day sheet. Oh, you don't know where the Starbucks is? Go look at the day sheet. It tells you where the Starbucks is. You know what I mean? You don't know the Wi-Fi passcode? Go look at the day sheet. The fucking Wi-Fi passcode's on the day sheet. You know what I mean? You've already done that job. And now they're the asshole for making you work harder. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Punchy, thank you for coming on. It's been awesome talking to you, and I feel like uh, we should probably do another one of these. Hey, man, anytime. Yeah, I feel like we probably still have a few hours left of material to talk through. Yeah, I mean, and I can just say this. If I've offended anybody, well, fuck you. You're too much <laughs> of a pussy to be in this fucking business. 
I don't see how you could have possibly offend anybody with what you said. Every single thing that you talked about is absolute truth from my experience. Like, I, I stand behind every single thing you said. And, um, you know, people who would get offended by it, yeah, they will not last. They will not last more than three days trying to do this. Um, there will be those people that I've seen come out with bands who literally leave after three days because <laughs> they can't handle it. Oh, sure. There's all those guys and they always wind up crying and going home to mama. You know what I mean? Literally crying. Literally crying. Yeah. <laughs> this is funny stuff. Well, thank you, man. You're thank welcome. you so much. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon, man. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone. We focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. Go to drumforge.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.